everybody to your creativity. We are talking to a comedian from across the country in New York. Um, his name is Sean Eli. He was, he's a comedian, a stand-up comedian, and he has wrote for many, many years for uh, late night television. And we welcome you. How are you? I'm good. I'm awake, ready to go. I got a fake brick wall behind me, so here I am. <laughs> I, I'm liking the brick wall behind you. Steve, Steve's got a fridge behind him for the people listening. <laughs> I wish I had a yep. fridge behind me. <laughs> I need to steal your brick wall, apparently. Well, if you put the brick wall in front of the fridge, you couldn't get any drinks out. Yeah, that's true. I could put it behind the fridge. But... <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I think we're getting away from it. Um, now, Sean, you, you started comedy pretty late, um, around 40 years old. Is that right? Yes. It was uh, a little bit different. And, and you kind of fell into it. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I've been writing jokes for late night TV for a long time. And I fell into that kind of by accident because when Jay Leno first got the tonight show, I would, this is before the internet, you know, this is you know, 40 not 40 years ago, 30 years ago, I guess. Uh, I would read the newspaper on the train in the way, on the way to work, and I'd think of a joke or two or 10. And then when I watched the show that night, he'd be telling essentially the same kind of joke. So I pitched my ability to write for him, and I started writing freelance. And then- you know, How I, do you even do that, Sean? How do you even reach out to him? Somehow I got somebody on the phone, which is surprising. Jay had always used freelance writers when for his act and also for his opening monologue when he was the guest host. So it wasn't a big step for him to continue to use freelancers when he was the permanent host of the Tonight Show. So I just called and, you know, somehow persistently warmed my way in to where somebody said, okay, you know, send us some jokes. Here's, a, here's forms to fill out. And they started buying my jokes. And then I was on a, that was just writing, but then I was on a date when I was around 40 and first date, the woman looked at me and said, you know, you should do stand-up comedy. And I said, I had friends who were actors and I had zero interest in being a performer. And she talked me into taking a class and I took a class and started performing. And I guess it's working because it's 18 years later and that's all I do now. Uh, what, what type of um, places or clients do you usually um do do um comedy for well a lot of different ones so not just comedy clubs i perform in theaters i perform at you know fundraising shows for houses of worship i've done shows in an embassy in a barn i've done some private parties i've done corporate events uh three days ago i did a show at a theater um uh, i'm making doing the math in my head it doesn't really matter that it was three days ago but three days ago i did a show at a theater in, in the new york area but outdoors because they weren't ready to reopen indoors yet with the pandemic so i was on a small stage and the people actually at the bottom of a hill and the people were sitting on the ground or in chairs on the side of a hill watching the show wow <laughs> it, and apparently you no longer do speed dating gigs I don't know. Is there still speed dating? I haven't seen a reference to it in a long time. But no, yeah, I, I just—I heard about that experience. 
Yeah, that was very odd. So I don't know whether we need to, should we explain what speed dating is or was? Yeah, we, we might have to. All right. Uh, You're talking to a Utah audience. So, I mean, there's probably a lot of speed dating that they don't even know is speed dating. <laughs> I had a joke about that. I said, I went speed dating. I didn't know I was speed dating. She left after five minutes. So, <laughs> yes, the way speed dating works is you, they get a, let's say, 20 men and 20 women or whatever and the women sit in chairs and then the men sit facing them in chairs and it's like they call it a date it's sometimes more like a job interview and you speak for five minutes then the men get up and they move over one chair and have the next five minute conversing with the person and then at the end of the night you turn in a form and you check the ones you like and the women check the ones they like and in any overlap they get you get matched up so i was hired to do a show for a speed date for a speed dating event, which is dumb, because people there <laughs> didn't want a comedy show. They they wanted to meet people. But then when I got there, they told me that they weren't going to do speed dating. It was just going to be a, a singles event. I'm like, that's not real. But I needed the money and the practice at the time. Now I don't. But when you're new, you take every gig you're offered. And some guy can. I did the best I could, but people weren't paying attention. And stand-up comedy is not background music. You've got to pay attention. And so a guy came up to me afterwards and he said, you need better material. And I just got upset. And I said, no, my material's fine. What I needed was a receptive audience. And the fact that you would say something so obnoxious to me proves that I needed a better audience. Yeah. Okay. And you talked a little bit about, um, in some other podcasts, just how COVID has changed things. And so there's a lot of, you, you do a lot of communicating on Zoom and different like media like that. How does it impact you? It's really, I can't speak for all comedians, but for a lot of the ones I work with, it took us a while to figure out that the medium is different. So a lot of times what happens when you're on stage in front of a live audience, you tell a joke. If it's a subtle joke, it may take the audience a second to get it. And sometimes what happens is one person laughs and that then the laughter spreads as people figure out the joke and then the laughter dies down and then you keep going. The problem with, and if the joke doesn't get a laugh, it's, you know, you give it a second or two and then you just feel terrible and you keep going. But with Zoom, if I say something, it may be a second before it goes through the system and gets to you and then you need a second to, to, to absorb the joke and start laughing and then the other people don't hear your laughter for another second and then for them to laugh it's another second and another second to get back to me so what happens is you may go three or four seconds where there's no laughter yet and for a comedian that's horrible so we we eventually learned shut up and wait for the laughter it will come but for the first couple of months of zoom shows it was really difficult i mean i guess valium would help Valium and melatonin just to slow you down a little bit so your reactions are a little more. You know, I have one joke where the the pun literally the punchline is being silent. And so when I tell that joke, I have to say in my head, one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. So I gotta give the people three or four seconds to get that. The fact that I stopped talking is the punchline and for them to get it. So I've sort of learned that lesson. So when I do Zoom shows, I also remind myself, hey, you just gotta shut up and it'll it'll get to them. So now and that- I imagine, oh, sorry, Dylan. 
I was just going to ask now that you're starting to do live shows again, are you teaching yourself that, that timing? I, I guess we really don't have to because there's laughter. So yeah, it's easier to, it's, e it's a thing. It's easier to unlearn. Gotcha. All right, Steve, what were you going to say? No, I was just thinking like, how hard is it to be silent? I mean, as a comedian, I, I just think that act is hard, but it's also really important to get that, that laugh. It's torture at the beginning because you think, you think the joke didn't land and you got to wait to prove yourself to prove that it did land, but you got to wait a couple of seconds. So at the beginning it was tough. And then I, I've still, you know, in the last few months I've done, we're recording this in, in August. So it's the pandemic has been around for over a year, but I've, I've still done Zoom shows where some comics haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I work uh, with Wise Guys and Dry Bar Comedy. And, you know, it took a while for things to come back. And, you know, some of the comedians are are rusty. Um, dur during COVID, did you use the opportunity to work on new material and, and that kind of stuff? I used the opportunity to do a few things. One was to write some new material, mo most of which I haven't performed lately. I just, because I have a lot of material, so I'm perfectly happy doing material that I've been using for years. But what I really use the, the opportunity for is to, to rehearse by myself. And I think I, I might've gotten stronger as a comic during the pandemic because I was getting on stage in my house. So in addition to Zoom shows and doing outdoor shows, and I did some outdoor shows just in my neighborhood, you know, people's backyards or in front of my house for neighbors, I, I rehearsed a lot, which is something I'd never really done much of before the pandemic. So I think I got better. And I think that every time, I would say maybe every other or every third time I do an hour of material, just walking around my house, I think of another punchline or I think of a better way to do something. So I think my act got stronger and my performance got stronger from being at home, which is pretty rare and fortunate. Yeah. How important do you think community or like um, the comedy is for the community? Like what think, role do you think it plays or for society? Well, I think there's two roles. One, well, three roles that I can think of. One is certainly satire has a purpose in society and pointing out how ridiculous some stuff is. So people who are doing political comedy or just have a satirical joke, that has a specific function in society. Another one is people need laughter. Laughter cheers people up. And it's also a community experience because if you go, I mean, one of the reasons people see movies in a movie theater is to be with other people, even if it's not people they know. Because we don't need to go to movies anymore. We all have giant televisions at home, but we still go to movies. And I think comedy is the same thing. It's a shared communal experience where you're with other people laughing at the same thing. And the only bond you have those other people is that you're laughing at the jokes. I also have on my website, my website, brainchampagne.com, I have a page which lists all the health benefits and other benefits of laughter. So I've done some research into it. So it lowers, it lowers cholesterol? I, actually, <laughs> I don't know that, I don't know that that's one of the effects, although I guess laughing is a small amount of exercise. Certainly walking to a comedy club 
lowers cholesterol because that's exercise. Going up and down steps is exercise. A lot of comedy clubs are, are in the, our basement level. But if you're eating the cheese fries, maybe it's not lowering your, lowering your cholesterol. <laughs> now, um, you talked about uh, satirical. You wrote your first satirical essay at 10 years old. Yeah. That, I, I, I'm not a good writer now, let alone 10 years old. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. I didn't say it was any good, but I, <laughs> I, my mother found it when I was probably in my 30s. And you could tell it was age 10 because it was written on the, the writing that kids use, the pa paper that kids use where the lines are far apart and there's a dashed line across the middle of each line. Yeah. So you know that your small, your lowercase letters are below that and your uppercase letters take up the whole line. And it was a weird essay about throwing a snowman into, being mad at my mother and a, I think a snowman throwing her into a washing machine or she threw the snowman in the washing machine. I don't really remember. But clearly I was pissed about something. I think maybe I tried to bring a snowman inside and my mother would have <laughs> Hopefully she used bleach just to keep it white. No, no pee in that snow. No, I... <laughs> That, that was not a problem where I live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so what's next for you? I, I, my dream is to come to Utah and perform again. I, I don't know what's next for me. More shows. I, I Strangely, I mean, I built my whole business of booking shows at theaters by cold call. Just calling or emailing or writing to theaters saying, hey, you don't have comedy in your theater you need to. And there's a lot of small theaters where they have plays or musicals or they have music, they have cover bands, that sort of thing. And they don't have comedy. And I built my business by knocking on doors and saying, hey, you should bring my comedy shows to your theater. And I have a pretty good run of it. And just in the last, say, three months, places that have ignored me for a decade are reaching out and getting in touch with me and want shows. So I think my business is expanding. And your business is called the Ivy League of Comedy? Yes, the Ivy League of Comedy. And, and it's you booking yourself and, and others to right. theaters. And... You know, not always myself. Not always. I, mean, I, I just booked a show at an 850-seat theater just north of New York City, and I didn't put myself in that show. And the reason is I wanted it to be an all-women's show because they've had comedy at that theater and they rarely have women. And I'm like, well, let me do something different for them. So I, I hope the show does well and I come back a couple of months later and do another show where I will be in it. But for the most part, I'm in the shows I do. But the reason I started doing it is to get myself on stage. Uh, speaking of being on stage, you uh, uh, performed internationally. Um, where and how was that experience? Uh, a lot of fun and a little intimidating in a couple of places. So the first place I performed internationally was South Africa. And I thought, well, they speak English, it's their native language, it's Western. I don't have a lot of jokes that have cultural references, should not be a problem at all. And then I discovered that values are different. So I had a, I had a joke, for example. I have a joke about an obnoxious Christmas letter. And you know the type, you know, you get one and it's all bragging. For yeah. Dear friends and family, we've conquered the world and we're all, you know, flying private planes and our kids are all perfect, those kind of letters. And I, I have a joke where I, it's like a five minute story where I just exaggerated and didn't go over. And then I looked at them like, what's going on? I'm like, nobody here brags about stuff. We have nothing to brag about. 
you know, we're a, we're a poor country. And so I couldn't do that joke for them because they just couldn't identify with it. Um, did you ever, uh, the countries with different languages, how, how did the language barrier affect your performance in the show? Not nearly as much as I thought it would. I know I live in New York and we get a lot of international audiences. So right. I'm used to doing shows where if, if you have somebody from Estonia, who's let's say, who's in the United States, presumably they're wealthy enough to travel and reasonably well-educated and come to a comedy club speaking English, but their English may not be so good. So if you have a far, very foreign audience, you slow down so that they can understand, because comedy, you, you know, a joke, you don't just listen to it. You have to absorb it and understand it. And it's got to sink in. So if you slow down, you make it easier for them. But if I'm doing shows for, let's say, a Swedish audience, their English is as good as mine. So I don't need to. But I was in Thailand just before the pandemic, and the audience there was partially tourists and partially very educated Thais who went to American or English schools, and their English was fine. So that didn't really require anything. Gotcha. Um, as a viewer of comedy, what kind of comedy do you like best? Do you like storytelling, observational? Um... I like it all. I like stuff that's more clever than just shock value, dirty comedy. I mean, there's there's good, clever, dirty comedy, but a lot of it just seems to be shocking the audience. And that's not for me. But what I'm really sick of, I guess, is people just making fun of the obvious stuff that everybody's heard before. You yeah. know, hey, look how stupid everybody is because they do this and I'm not stupid. Uh, clean comedy versus uh, dirty comedy. Um... I think I read or heard somewhere that, you know, it's easier to write clean and dirty it up if you need to. What is, what, what's your opinion on that? Well, it's certainly easier to take a clean joke and throw the F word in every once in a while or that sort of thing. And I have one joke where I say I beat the blank out of somebody is one of the punch. So I beat the blank out of him. And I've tried every other word in place of the S word, every word I could think of that's a synonym um, from, you know, crap to stuffing to heck to hell to all those. And none of it works as well as the four letter word. But if I'm doing a clean show, I'm not going to tell the joke with a four letter word. I, I think it really depends on the person writing the joke, because I don't tend to think of dirty jokes. It's not what occurs to me. So it's not hard for me to write clean, but there are people who all they think of is dirty stuff and they can't write clean jokes. And that works well for me because if just to pick a number, if 80% of the comics working today can't do a clean 45 minutes, well, that got rid of 80% of my competition to try to get a clean gig somewhere. And, and clean comedy is growing. You know, I, I work, work for dry bar and, you know, over the years, it's just exploded. So th there is a market for it, and and I think I think that's awesome because I know I, it's, in it's interesting that there's a market for it. But Drybar just sold their their entire library, and they didn't sell it to Netflix or Amazon or HBO or Showtime, which is where I thought the market would be. Yeah, yeah, it's been. Son, go ahead. Who do you listen to? Like who, who, when you listen to comedians, who, who inspires you? Or maybe who was like one of your role models or mentors into that? I would say if I had to pick somebody that I looked up to 
before I started or when I started, it would be Robert Klein. But I mean, there's a lot of great comedians out there. You know, there's Rita Rudner, Jay Leno, I think is an underrated comic that people love to just be angry at him for what went on with the Tonight Show succession. But there's a lot of great comics and I could name a bunch of people that you guys, have, well, you guys may have heard of them, but your audience probably hasn't heard of them who are just brilliant. There's a lot of great comics in New York. Awesome. Oh, but have you met Jay Leno? You know, you wrote for him for that. Does yeah. you, did you ever meet him? Yeah, I've met him a few times. He's a really nice guy. He'll just sit down and talk to you. He just genu genuinely likes people. That's awesome. Because he seems like a nice guy, but yeah, the, all the Tonight Show stuff, I think. Did, did tarnish you know people's first impression of him you know it's so weird i started when he first when he went from when he left the tonight show and got the 10 p.m gig five nights a week uh i think they called it the jay leno show i wanted to shoot a video and send it to him to be used on the show so i grabbed a cameraman we went to lower manhattan and we just started interviewing people on the street for what i was doing and i think it's on my website it's one of the videos on my website and I started interviewing people and they would say, what's this for? And we would say, we're shooting this for Jay Leno. And we got a very common response, which was, get away from me. I like Conan. I'm like, it's not a competition. You can like both of them. Yeah. But people seem to think, oh, no, you have to choose sides. And the more I've learned about it, NBC was the bad guy there, not. Right. And Jay was just making the best decision he thought was at the time for him um, well, anyway. yeah, he did agree to, to retire at some time in the future. When he got to the future, he didn't want to retire. So, I mean, everybody there bears some responsibility for, for how it worked out. But certainly, if you're talking about the first time around where he and Letterman were vying to take Johnny Carson's job, they were just doing what they could to get the job. Yeah. Who, Sean, with oh, go ahead. Oh, Sean, I'm just thinking you talked about like just the divisiveness between Conan and Leno. What about politics right now, or even America? Like when you look at people unvaccinated, vaccinated, I mean, society obviously has a problem um, of anger. Um, do you see a solution for that? Or how do you see comedy helping in that? I think the solution is for everybody who disagrees with me to leave. I think that would work perfectly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but aside from that, you know, when I started, I wanted to do political comedy because I used to read political commentary, you know, satirical commentary in, in newspapers. And I'm like, oh, that's what I want to do. And when I got on stage, I realized that if you're going to do political comedy, no matter where you go, you're going to piss off at least a third of the audience when you start being political. And in the days before that, audiences would sit politely and be, be okay that you made fun of their guy, but that went away. So... In the States, I don't do any political comedy. When I traveled overseas, when Trump was president, people wanted to know where I stood. And as soon as they heard I was an American, they really wanted to know what I thought of Trump. So I would open with the Trump joke and get that out of the way, and then they'd be fine. But I did, do you guys know who Chad Prather is? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I should explain. He's a, he says he's a humorist, not a comedian, but he's, he was a motivational speaker who was funny. And people said, skip the motivational part and just be funny. And he started doing rants, political rants, sitting in his pickup truck. And it went viral on YouTube. And he started doing performing in theaters. And a local theater hired me to open for him. And I thought, well, I better do something political. 
going, he's, he's right wing. I better do something political because that's the theme of the show. And I got on stage and I said, and he introduced me and I got on stage and I said, no, thank you. Um, I'm pleased to open for him. I'm probably gonna be up here for about 20 minutes. And the typical pay for a 20 minute opening is about $250. And I'm not complaining about what I'm getting paid. I think that's great. I'm very happy to be here. But $250 for 20 minutes is $750 an hour. And you would think that a guy who earns $750 an hour would be a Republican. But I think it's perfectly reasonable that I should only have to work 20 minutes a night. And that makes me a Democrat. <laughs> you covered and, all bases. Yeah, so I, and that, that was fine. And then I didn't do anything political for the rest of my set. Um, let's see. Uh, what, when you're writing, what situations are most creative for you? Strangely enough, sleeping. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but at least a couple of times a week, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have a dream or I'll have a thought. And if I'm not too tired, I, I keep pen and paper next to my bed and I write it down. And sometimes I'll wake up and look at it and say, well, I thought it was funny at four o'clock in the morning, but it's dumb. Other times it's actually good and I can get a joke out of it. And once in a while I wake up with a complete set in my, like complete five or 10 minute story in my head. Like, oh, this happened to me 10 years ago. If I change these few details, now I've got a great joke. And if I, if I have the energy, I'll, I'll get out of bed, I'll sit down at my computer, I'll type it in, and the next morning I'll have a routine. Nice, that's awesome. Um, so at the beginning you said, we said that you started doing comedy at 40. What did you do before that? And, and what influence did it have you know, your com in your comedy? You know, life shapes us. So I was well, curious about that. I, I was a banker and no, that mess was not my fault. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, there's advantages and disadvantages in starting at 40 instead of 22 or 23, because you do have life experiences. If you, if you go to open mic nights and you watch new comedians starting out and they don't have life experiences, I would say at least a third of them are like living in their parents' basement, smoking pot and pleasuring themselves. And that's what they have jokes about and video games. And that's what they have jokes about. I'm like, Aside from the fact that I can't relate to those experiences, you don't want five comedians all talking about the same topics. If you start at 40, you've got life experiences. So I do have some jokes about my former employer because they deserve it. And <laughs> there's some wisdom that, that, that comes with age. So if you're 20 and you have a bad set, you're miserable for a week. And if you're 40 and you have a bad set, and everybody has a bad day at work once in a while, if you're 40 and you have a bad set, you go home and you think, well, what went wrong? You don't let it ruin your day. You say, okay, what went wrong? How can I fix it so it doesn't happen again? You just said that wisdom comes with age. What's the best lessons you've learned? What's, or what's the best advice you've ever been given? In, in stand-up, everybody just says stage time, stage time, stage time. You get better by getting in front of an audience. I think a really good piece of advice, I'll give you the advice and I'll give you the other half. They say, record your sets. And now, you know, everybody's got a phone with a video, with video. In the old days, people would just use a tape recorder. When I started, a video camera wasn't that expensive 18 years ago, so I could get a video camera and put it in the back of the room. The second half of the advice is 
You have to watch your set. You can't just record it. You actually have to view it. And that's torture because you see every single mistake you make. You know, the audience may not realize I should have done something differently, but I will realize it. And you learn from watching what you did wrong. That's good advice. What other advice do you have for comedians uh, just getting started? Um, I'd say take a comedy class. And there's a perennial debate as to whether you can learn to be funny. And I think it's a stupid argument because you, you can't take somebody who has no sense of humor and give them a sense of humor. But you can take somebody with a sense of humor and show them how to use it better. You can teach them how to structure jokes. You can teach them how to use a microphone. I think the biggest thing is work on your weaknesses, not on your strengths. So if you're a good writer and a bad performer, get on stage as much as you can. If you're already a good performer, because maybe you're an actor or a musician and you're already naturally good on stage, you need to spend your time writing jokes. Okay. I, th I think that's pretty much the questions I had. Um, uh, Steve, do you have any anything else for him? Uh, no, but I could just keep listening because, I mean, I really love that. And, uh, you know, I've never even myself looked at taking those classes, but and I wouldn't even know where to start. But I think nowadays technology, I mean, there's so many advantages and, and formats that you could take classes from. Um, I just think that's really good advice. Well, thanks. I mean, there are classes now that people have been doing on Zoom because the people who teach comedy classes obviously couldn't do it in the classroom. So you may discover that even at the end of the pandemic, people are still gonna have Zoom classes. Because after all, we've discovered we can do shows for people who aren't near a comedy club. So if you live in a small town and there's no comedy show within a hundred miles, you can now go to a comedy show on Zoom. So I think those people can also take a comedy class. But I don't know that most comedy clubs have classes, but there are comedy clubs that do have stand-up classes. So if you go to your local comedy club's website, look around you may see that they have a class do you see any good that came out of the pandemic for comedians wow um i tried didn't have a lot of pandemic jokes because i think that people are going to a comedy show to forget about their problems not to hear people remind them that you know their cousins in the hospital so i don't know that a lot of good in the in comedy the only thing i could think of is the idea of a Zoom show may continue after the pandemic where you, you may discover that a comedy club either sticks a camera in the back of the room, because I've done shows where they live stream them, a live show, and then they live stream it. The other possibility is, and I don't know that the, the emotional technology is here yet, but you put a camera in the back of the room, let's say I'm on stage, which looks like I am because of the pony brick wall. So you stick a camera in the back of the room and it's showing me on stage, but, and there's an audience, in a live audience in front of me, but what's on the wall behind me is a monitor with all the people on Zoom watching the show. And I can turn around and interact with them the same way I might interact with the audience in front of me. And yeah, I that, think that, that will be an amazing thing if and when we do. Yeah, um, we've had both Ben Glebe and Steve Hofstetter on the podcast. Oh, okay. And they started Nowhere Comedy Club. And their next step is they're gonna have, uh, seating in the room that the performing is going on then they'll have the people on the screen so that that is in the works for at least there well if anybody's going to do it it's going to be steve hofstetter but i think that to take it one step further where the audience the live audience 
and the comedian can see the the Zoom audience and interact with them. Yeah. So that those those that choose to be part of it, I mean, obviously they can turn their camera off and then they're anonymously in the back of the room. But if there's people who want to be talked to, and I'm not encouraging audiences to interrupt or heckle comedians, but if the comedian wants to say, hey, Dylan, uh, what's that red thing behind you? You know, tell me about it or what do you do for a living or where are you? And, and you want the conversation, then you, the beauty of that is people watching on Zoom will feel like they're at the show, which they don't get now just staring at a screen. That's true. And that red thing behind me is a dog. <laughs> it's part of a big standee of uh, James Drapling. He's a graphic designer. And so, yeah, that's where that came from. <laughs> okay. Um, are we ready for bonus questions, Steve? Yeah, but I may come up with another question. So okay. you can start okay, well, with those. We'll do the first one and we'll check in with you. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. What does creativity mean to you? Um, I think creativity is coming up with something that someone else hasn't done before. So it doesn't have to be a painting or a poem or a joke or a song. You can have a creative solution to a business problem. And it's just thinking of something, another way to do it. Like Picasso with cubism decided that the way he's reducing three dimensions to a two-dimensional painting is different from the way that every other painter had done it before him. I like that. Yep, no, go ahead. Sean, so I was watching some of your um, interviews, like a, a couple of podcasts, and I afterwards, I actually came across a little article, but it was with Elon Musk and it was talking about artificial intelligence. And I'm just when you were talking about the different technology, do you think artificial intelligence can ever learn good humor? You know, I forgot who it was, but I heard on a podcast a year or two ago, somebody said he thought that, and this is one of the popular podcasts, like, oh, I think it was the Freakonomics podcast. He thought that comedians would be the last people to re be replaced by computers. And I disagree. I think certainly a computer with artificial intelligence can analyze a bunch of successful comedians and figure out their manner, a good mannerism and a good way to tell jokes. You know, how to, how to emote when you tell a story and what things to emphasize. So that I think is easily solved. Right now, computers, and people are working on this to get computers to write jokes. And right now they stink at it. But I think, or they can write the really formulaic kind of jokes where you just take two things and you twist them in the opposite direction. But I think That's that- probably, oh, sorry, I cut you off. And I was gonna say, I think that, you know, in five or 10 years, we could have computers writing jokes. Is there a difference between a technically well-written joke and one that hits? Ah, uh, I, I don't know. That's a good question because if it doesn't hit, then it wasn't, it wasn't written well. But I think sometimes jokes are, are too subtle and the audience needs a little time to catch it. Like, I don't know, I'm friends with Mike Kaplan, who's a great comedian, and his jokes are, are clever to the point where the audience needs a couple of seconds sometimes to figure it out. But Mike talks so fast that some people start laughing and he doesn't, he doesn't wait for everybody else to catch up. And I, I would love to, to be able to slow him down and see how it works. ADD, does that play a role in comedy? 
Do you think many comedians have ADD? I don't know enough about it to answer that question. I think a lot of us are restless, but I also think that people would say, well, are comedians the class, comedians the class clown? I'm like, no, I think we were usually the shy ones who thought of something funny, but never said it. And the people who said it got yelled at and stopped being the funny one because they kept getting <laughs> criticized for it. So I don't know that comedians are the ones with ADD. Uh, the next uh, bonus question is, who's your favorite Muppet and why? I don't know because I'm just old enough that I never watched the Muppets. But um, I know the names of a couple of them, <laughs> but I don't have an explanation. I would dislike Cookie Monster because clearly he's eating all the cookies and not leaving any for the rest of us. There we go. We'll, we'll go with that one. So you asked me which one I like, and I told you which one I don't like, and that's a typical comedian answer. Yeah. <laughs> Here's an answer, but not the one you wanted. Right. And in the movie of your life, who would uh, you like to play you? Uh, I mean, the obvious answer is the person most suited physically to play me is clearly George Clooney. There you go. <laughs> but I think they're more likely, if it's the movie of my life, they're more likely to cast uh, Roseanne Barr than George Clooney. <laughs> I, I, uh, just just appearance-wise, uh, Richard Clark, Richard, <clears throat> Richard Kind, kind uh, that was on Mad About You and the actor. You think he looks like me? A little, a little bit. I think just I get, enough that it could. I get told a lot that I look like people, but this is the first time I've heard Richard Kind. I've heard, um, let's see, I've heard Larry David. I've heard Larry Miller, who's also a comedian. I've heard, unfortunately, George Costanza. And they never say Jason Alexander. They always say George Costanza. <laughs> I think all of those, it's just because of my hair <laughs> But I've also heard I look like Tony Soprano, which I think is hairline and blue eyes, and that's about it. And uh, Jim Gaffigan told me I look like Oliver Stone. I can I can see Oliver Stone, and I, I just might have Richard Kind on the brain because I've been watching a lot of Mad About You lately, and he was on uh, um, last week tonight, last night. So oh, I haven't I might... seen it yet, so I'll have to watch it and see. So yeah, I'm I might... Sean. Go ahead. I, I just want to ask, so has failure taught you anything or have you had many failures? I've never failed at anything. <laughs> um, you learn from failure at least as much as from success. So I think when something doesn't go well, you should learn from it. Sometimes you got to make the same mistake a bunch of times to learn. But here's the thing about comedians, and this may apply to other professions as well, but I say you have to get better to realize how good you're not because everybody starts out in comedy and think, oh, in a year I'll be, you know, on the Tonight Show and Colbert and I'll have an HBO special and you're not good enough. And after two years, you look back and say, well, you know, a year ago I thought I was a genius and I realize now that I wasn't a genius a year And then two years later, you look back at that point and you say the same thing and it never stops. You really have, or it doesn't stop until you're decent and realize you still have a ways to go. So if you talk to a comedian who's been doing it for 20 years, they'll tell you they're definitely better than they were, you know, five years ago. What keeps you going in comedy? I get paid to make people laugh. I can't think of a better job than that. 
I like how you put it uh, on another show. Um, you stand on a box and talk into a stick. Yeah, that's. I mean, people ask what my job is, and I, I could give you the you know the social explanation. Uh, oh, so I was at. But really, that's what I do. I stand on a box and talk into a stick. And I was at a when I was started doing comedy, and I still had a day job. I went, went to a networking event, and it was at the Princeton Club, so everybody there was really snooty. And they asked us to describe our jobs. And I said, my job, you know, speaks for itself. I'm a stand-up comedian, which I didn't intend it as a punchline. I just meant, you know, all you have to do is say stand-up comedian. Everybody knows what you do. You say dentist or journalist, you know, driving instructor. There are jobs you can, you just name the title and people know what the job is. But some of the people there had really snooty jobs and they would talk for five minutes and you still couldn't understand what they did. So when I said, my, my job speaks for itself. I'm a stand-up comedian. A bunch of people laughed like for 20 seconds. It was a lot of laughter, which I think was completely undeserved. But then the guy in charge said, no, you got to explain, you know, what you do and the function of society and blah, blah, blah. And I just said, okay, it's my job to make you forget how much you hate your job. And I think that's also an explanation of what I do. For sure. Where can people find you? In front of a brick wall, clearly. <laughs> um, well, I used to tour all, all over the world, but with the pandemic, I've cut that back to just staying in the United States. My website is brainchampagne.com because it rhymes and people remember it. And I think of comedy as sort of like, you know, bubbles for the brain or champagne for the brain. So that website doesn't just have my performance schedule on it and, and nine videos. It's got 50,000 words worth of jokes, which is a lot of jokes. And it's all free. Awesome. I, I may have a question when we're done, too. Uh-oh. <laughs> I just don't want it as part of the interview. Oh. Is it a dirty question? No, it's actually clean. It's more just an advice question. But uh, do you ever turn people down when they come to you for advice? Uh, do I turn people down when they come to me? No, I've... I've I've had people write to me here and there or people at shows and they ask for advice. And I'm happy to talk to them. I, I also, I book a lot of shows and I get people writing to me wanting to work for me. And I might be the only booker in the world who actually bothers to say no, but I don't say no. I just say, you're not ready yet, but check with me in a couple of years. Cause I've had people literally send me a video of themselves sitting at a computer, reading jokes off their screen who've never been on stage asking to be booked. Yeah, that would be me. Like, like what I wrote. Book me. <laughs> yeah, I have no stage presence and imposter syndrome and stage fright. So that, that, that's why I'm not up there. And I can't write either. Um, can, well, I don't know about the not writing part, but you can get over all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, maybe someday. Maybe when I'm 40. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe when I'm 40. There we go. <laughs> Well, thank you, Sean. Sean. Thank you, but but don't hang up yet. All no. right, we're, we're saying goodbye to the to listeners and the, the audience. Thanks, and go to my website. Hire me for shows. Rain champagne. Give this man some work. The podcast is done, man. <laughs>